All right, welcome back to Building a Fighter. My name is Dr. Austin Shane, sports chiropractor in Scottsdale, Arizona. With me, as always, I have Alex Friedman, badass strength coach in Denver, Colorado. Today, we have a special guest. His name is Tim Murray. So Tim Murray, he and Alex had met when they were at Denver University. Um, I think he was actually Alex's interim coordinator, um, but he was the assistant strength conditioning coach at Denver University, working mostly with the lacrosse team as well as a few other teams. And now he is actually the assistant strength coach at the Naval Academy. So listen in. Tim gives some fantastic insights into how to be a strength coach, where the strength coach profession is going, as well as overall, how can we elevate everybody, not just the strength coach, but everybody involved with the support staff behind our athletes. Sorry. There we go. There we go. <laughs> yeah, you can tell, ask Alex. I'm not, not a technology guy. So I thought this. <laughs> oh, you're all good. Cloud. All right, so we're, so we're talking about uh, role complexity and, and wh- what a strength coach is in total and where they are in the entire, like, I guess, training paradigm. So, Tim, yeah. take it away. Yeah, no, I was just um, – should I kind of go back to that first point? Or? No, just go off where you were. You're good. Bro, crush it. You're killing it. I think the um, – you know, if you look at uh, where people are trying to pull different parts of, of what our role is, uh, part of that is becoming the over uh, analysis of data and objective mm-hmm. um, data that we consume, and we don't really know how to digest it. We just put it in our mouths and hope for the best. Yeah. Um, and I think what that's turning into is you see the, I call it the pencil neck sports scientist approach where it's just, um, only data matters. You have to track everything. If you're not tracking everything, you're a negligent professional and you should be fired. Um, but then you have the other side of things where it's, um, strictly cultural, strictly, um, you know, this is hype. how it was done. Yeah. yeah, yeah or, it's all dogmatic. Or, yeah. Or there's also, yeah, the hype man who I would say is some, some other completely different part of that spider graph that's going out a different direction. Yeah. I think what's happening is. With all these different directions, um, I think we're losing sight of what our role actually is. Um, and I think like people who did a really good job of this were Mike Boyle. I think um, Chris Doyle had an opportunity to work under Chris Doyle. Um, I think um, Bob Alejo. Um, I think Boyd Epley. I think there's certain professionals, um, and you'll probably notice a theme that they're all kind of the OGs of the field. Yeah, They did a really good job, I think, defining what our role is. And I think now we're in a position where it's like, if we look at those as, for lack of a better term, as uh, the parents of the new generation of strength coaches, they did their best to try to guide where this profession should be in terms of role clarity. And I think right now we're in a growth stage where we don't know, and there's a lot of ambiguity of um, what do we actually do. And I think um, we need to have a united front and understand that all that stuff does matter, the objective data, um, the coach's eye, the uh, the fingertip feeling that you get in terms of just subjective approach to having a human conscious and psyche. Yeah. Um, and I think once we put all that stuff together and create an actual role, I think we're going to grow as, as a profession much faster than arguing over Olympic lifting or loaded jumps or arguing over SWAT depth and stuff that really doesn't matter at all. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. I, th- I think you're absolutely right. I think a lot of that a lot of people, because I think there's a lot of pressure to brand yourself and to be this guy or X guy or whatever, like they're all trying to, you know, tunnel into these one category. Like I'm the exercise science data guy, or I'm the culture guy, or I'm this X guy or whatever. People need to realize that those are just aspects of what it means to be a strength coach. Those are parts or traits of the profession. Yes. And I don't think people are putting those things together as 
as the you know pieces of the pie if you will they're just trying to make that a whole pie on its own which mm-hmm. makes you partially good at your job yeah. you're half you're half assing a whole bunch of stuff you can't you're not whole ass in one thing yep. essentially yeah yeah and i think it's it's interesting too because um like if you look at what our profession is turning into it's just a like a almost like a melting pot of you have the Soviet bloc and all the the systems and methods and approaches that come out of that. You have um, the systems, methods and approaches that come out of Chinese weightlifting and the whole Olympic committee within um, Eastern civilization. And then you see what's been developed through uh, Western um, and kind of the the growth patterns of like our accredited uh, institutions, NSCA, CSCCA. Um, And I think, What's happening is it's just kind of like what Bill Hartman talks about. It's just, these are all just infrastructures and they're all just, you know, if you're using a force plate, if you're using gym aware, if you're using any of this stuff, they're all just infrastructures that are supporting a notion of creating an adaptation from a stress that you're instilling upon an athlete. And I think that we, we forget that it's boiled down to just that. We're trying to give an athlete a stimulus, raise them to a new level of performance, whilst educating them on sleep, nutrition, recovery, and just being a better human. And I think we get caught up in uh, our egos as a profession, as individuals, and we start thinking like, okay, well, I need to um, almost create like a competitive nature with all these other professionals to get my name out there, my brand out there in a saturated marketplace. Um, And we stop kind of realizing and diluting it down to the fact that that really is our role, is instilling a stimulus for a subsequent adaptation. And then once the athletes in higher levels of competition we lower our general stimulus and the stimulus comes from the specificity of their sport. And I think we just don't overcomplicate that. Yeah. <laughs> I know I was, we, we had a uh, Bo Sandoval on recently and, and talking with him. And then I actually, we, we've been in contact a little bit and he said something about um, just like training camp paradigms and stuff like that for MMA. And he's like, people don't understand that if you're not re- like recovery leads everything that you're doing, if you're not recovering in between, you're just wasting training time. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that kind of similar to what you're saying is like, we, we overly com- we overly complicate everything mm-hmm. in, in strength and conditioning where it's like, Hey, is the athlete recovered? And did you give them a positive stimulus? Yes or no. Did you give that? That's really what it comes down to. And then if that stimulus then can grow and can grow, we can get to a point where it's progressing or, Hey, maybe we're fucking something up and they're not recovering in between and they just keep going down, down, down. And we have, guess what? Overtraining. And those are like, those are broken down just to two things. That's all yep. it needs to be. <laughs> but I think even with that too, it's, it's people, people try to box that up in a nice, clean, you know, pretty bow, bow and, and say, this is what it is. There's an adaptation. There's a recovery process or a stimulus and recovery process and a subsequent adaptation. But then there, you have to realize also that there's some of the smartest people in the world that are discovering carbon matter on other planets and discovering, <laughs> um, you know, all these different new levels of consciousness between humans and vibrations and all this other stuff going on. And somehow every strength coach who has their CSCS knows more than them. And it's kind of, <laughs> I mean, I just think that's funny because it's like, you know, with what you're saying about uh, recovery process, that could look different for us three. You give us all the same stimulus and we could all recover at different rates. We could all a different level or magnitude or amplitude of a stimulus. We could all require different um, volumes, frequencies, intensities of that stimulus. And then in terms of the recovery process itself, um, you know, uh, we, we could, you know, Alex might benefit more from passively stretching because it just down regulates the, uh, the, the muscle tissue and the central nervous system and allows them to just come down from that, that sympathetic state 
whereas I might benefit more from cold water submersion or contrast baths. And then you might benefit more because maybe you believe in, um, you know, the, the marketing scheme of Theraguns and Normatex and all these other things. <laughs> so like, it just, that's, there's so many things that go into, cause you have to take into account the psychology of the athlete, mm-hmm. what they believe in. Uh, placebo effect is in fact an objectively researched thing. It's not just something that's out in the universe. Um, and I think that we, we have to take into all these, all these things into account before we start making really, really objective claims about things um, in our field. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the biggest things that I see in specifically in MMA training. Like if, if you're not individualizing your care, your training program, your treatments, whatever, then, then you're missing a little bit of the boat because specifically in MMA, it's a individual sport right you're going out there alone in the middle of an octagon you're gonna try and perform so you need a, a professional that can do the objective thing and measure the data and, and do all you're getting better but also see those recovery patterns see what this type of you know treatment works for you this type of stimulus has elicited the best results that we've seen and and, and things like that and then we can customize and and see that from you know that coach's eye perspective or the subjective type of measurement so it's again, bringing in aspects of both to create the best service. Yeah. And I think that's where, where like the theory of relativity comes into play because you need to make sure that, and this is what I think um, Matt Jordan does a really good job of uh, in terms of his assessment process. I think the assessment process needs to also include um, how do you like being coached? How do you take feedback? Uh, You know, are you an introvert? Are you an extrovert? Um, What things have benefited you in the past? What's your perception of my role to you as a coach to an athlete? Like, all these things that we, we kind of don't ask, but um, I think are extremely important. Like we, we just put somebody on a force plate and we just have them jump. And all of a sudden we think that we can just like assess every single thing about how they play their sports. And how it's like, yes, the MSK assessment of a force plate is really important and you can get a lot of good data from it. But if that data is not paired with knowing um, is this kid uh, a introvert? Is he an extrovert? How, what are his sleep patterns like? Um, does he actually buy into objective uh, tracking and load monitoring or is he more somebody who wants to have a conversation or a subjective questionnaire that might benefit him? And I think these blanket approaches, and you look at the, the principles of training and, and you look at individualization, specificity, you look at uh, adaptation, overload, and all these things that go into it. Uh, and then to name one that you just talked about, specificity, I think that's one that, and individualization, those two are probably the two misnomed and misunderstood um, principles of, of the training process that uh, I think exist. People think that you need to create this highly specific scenario in which the athlete's going to um, somehow transfer these general qualities to a specific demand. And in reality, I think we just need to be okay with the fact that we're expert generalists and we're trying to improve somebody's um, neural firing rates. We're trying to improve their uh, rate coding, motor unit recruitment, their ability to repeat efforts um, the resiliency, their, their tissue structural uh, resiliency, all the things that go into it. But we like to think that we're creating this very specific training environment. And I don't think we're okay yet with just saying that we're general preparation coaches. Yeah, you're just getting Absolutely. people ready, ready for life. Yep. <laughs> yep. Well, and I, yeah. I think some of that comes, okay. <laughs> Sorry. I think some of that comes from what you're talking about initially um, in that strength coaches aren't secure in what they're being measured on or aren't secure in what their actual profession is. Right. So we have to say, you know, 
this is your our wrestling strength conditioning plan and it's specific to wrestling because we're training wrestling athletes or we're trying to recruit wrestling athletes um or i'm trying to you know make a bigger impact and talk other coaches languages where that's like the role ambiguity that, that you talk about because you know as a young generation of strength coaches we don't know we're like what do you want to hear as a head coach okay i'll say that on my program you know mm-hmm. and and that's not not the best approach forward for a strength and conditioning professional. Um, but what I would kind of want to get to the heart to Tim is what would you give as a, like a role clarity? So what was, would be your role description for a strength and conditioning or a human performance uh, professional? Yeah, I actually, um, I wrote out a PDF um, that I have. And I think you might remember that like reference binder. Sure. I, um, it essentially gave, I think it was eight different categories. So there was, um, strength, power, speed, uh, fitness, um, communications that goes into interdepartmental communication between, uh, and this is for college, obviously. So it's going to differ in private sector and professional, yeah. whatever, but, um, essentially just communication between the athlete coaches, administration, all these things. And then you go into assessments, um, you go into behavioral change and modification, and then the actual meat and potatoes of coaching. Um, but I think in terms of just the actual training side of things, I always, uh, break it down to three different things. So there's basic, and, and this is all, this is like everything is stolen. So this is from uh, science and practice where the the part, the first uh, parts of that book will break into basic concepts and theories of strength training. So just, I look at that as, um, you know, your, your base level uh, concurrent methods of tons of biomotor abilities, um, general strength requisites, relative and absolute strengths, um, just movement capacities, motor learning, um, all the things that make somebody just a general athlete. Um, and I think that also goes into the, the foundation that we also sometimes uh, omit from our role, which is you need to have good health and wellness before you have good performance. Um, and I think that goes into the basic concepts part of this. Um, and then you have athlete-specific um, strength and, and, and then you have task specific. So, um, once you break it down into those three roles, I think it becomes a little bit easier, um, because you can just plug and play each one of the, um, the six to nine, depending on which book you're reading principles of training into those three different categories. Um, is this a basic concepts? Is this an athlete specific or is this a task specific, uh, method system or principle of training? Um, and I think that that should be the meat and potatoes of what our role is is, um, you know, this athlete is deficient in this basic strength or this basic concept and theory of strength. It's, they have low relative strength, they have low absolute strength, they have poor strength endurance. Um, you know, their strength to power ratio is, is um, suboptimal. Um, and then you can get into the actual athlete specific where we talk about anthropometrics of a specific individual or, um, you know, maybe what types of allergens they have or what types of things actually influence their uh, their behavior, um, their ability to adapt to stimulus, their um, resiliency to stress, um, how they actually perform in their sport, which I think yeah. we talked about more. And then you get a task specific, and that's where you get into specificity of, um, you know, training a lacrosse player versus a football player or a wrestler versus a boxer and what that task actually involves and what you need to do to actually improve their performance for that. So I think that's how I break down our role. I like those three boxes. I like that. Well, dude, all those boxes, you have to actually take an assessment first, which is something that not a lot of strength coaches are doing anyways, (laughs) which is, which is hysterical, right? All the things you're saying, it's like, it comes down to, we need to know what's going on with the athlete, but there's so many in the private sector. Cause that's, I mean, that's where I'm at. That's where I see in, in MMA, MMA strength conditioning 
quote unquote MMA is very new. There's a lot of people that think like that are kind of in their own little camps, if you will. Um, And there's people that aren't even like, they're not even doing any assessments with their athletes. They're just coming in, writing up a workout. All right, go on your way. I'm like hearing somebody like you who's tried and true. I mean, you're a smart dude. If if you don't already know that, Tim, you're a smart dude. (laughs) But hearing somebody but you talk about that and then compared to what a lot of these top level fighters are getting in the private sector are two completely different things. And that's why I like having you talk about the role complexity. And something I want to elaborate on a little bit further is where you said interpersonal communications in the uh, college setting. Where do you, as far as like uh, in a performance team, if you will, where there's SNC, healthcare, dietetics, uh, skill coaches, how do you see yourself playing? I, I mean, I know you're the general prep role, but how do you see yourself playing out and how do you communicate that to the, the skill coaches that you work with or to the healthcare people that you are collaborating with? Yeah. Well, I think it needs to start with building a relationship. Um, I think too many times you see people come in and it's just, um, and, and that comes back to one of my favorite quotes, which is that you seek to understood, stand before you're understood. And I think too many times people come into an environment and they're like, okay, this is my role and I need to come in and do it. And everyone just needs to like start working with me right away. And I think one thing that people forget is um, for, for some reason, we, we think that we're like completely different from any other profession where, you know, if you're in business, if you're in law enforcement, if you're in corrections, if you're in retail, you have to like actually take time to build a relationship with someone before you start like bossing them around or telling yeah. them want from something um so i think first it just needs to come down to like showing that you're willing to understand what each individual within the organization's role is um and then you have to also just know the context of the person you're talking to because if you have uh, a coach who's been coaching for 50 years you should probably stop talking and maybe learn something from them rather than trying to just push all your whole agenda on onto that yeah um and then sometimes you might have somebody who's just like hey this is that's your thing. You take care of all that. We trust you. Um, so you just also have to know the context that you're walking into in terms of the actual individual. Um, and then from there, I think you just need to consistently every day um, walk what you're talking. So if you want your role to be A, B, C, and D, you need to make sure that A, B, C, and D are priorities within your program and structure. Um, and I think from there, like you, you I kind of look at the the sports performance or strength conditioning coach as, um, like I said, it's the expert generalist, and um, you kind of have to have your hands uh, in everything. So in the Venn, the Venn diagram, we're kind of overlapped a little bit with every single section of the. Um, sorry, I got to remember the fad terms here. The high performance model. Um, <laughs> yeah. So you have to make sure, like, you, you have to have a, a basic understanding of um, orthopedics and recovery modalities that. Uh, maybe the ATC or the sports medicine staff uses um, what they uh, they believe um, the best return to play protocol is for different whether it's a soft tissue, um, a, a ligament tendon injury, a concussion protocol, all the different things that they see. You have to have an understanding of their protocols in return to play. Um, for the coaching staff, you need to have a really good understanding of <clears throat> how they want to structure um, their practices, whether they're really heavy on strictly the culture piece and just kind of grinding things out uh, or if they're, they want to have structure in their tactical and technical development throughout the year and throughout the week and actually structuring what stress looks like day to day. Um, and you still have to be really open to um, maybe things that uh, strength coaches deem to be stupid. Um, you know, like the, uh, if, if a coach wants to run a mile and a half run test 
and it might have nothing physiologically to do or mechanically to do with the sport that they're playing, it's not really your place to come in and just start saying, no, we're not doing that. It's stupid. It's your, it's your role to find a way to make that matter and actually add value to that. So that's a real life example. So rather than saying to a coach who's been doing this far before I was even born, I'll just say, Hey, we can actually use that mile and a half test. And there's something called max aerobic speed training, which um, I know if I link to a system nowadays, somebody's going to jab me for it on social media, but um, you can use max aerobic speed and you can actually develop a specific individualized uh, progressively overloaded um, training program based on that mile and a half test. And then you can go into the other whole thing of saying, well, yes, it is a psychological test to run a mile and a half under a certain time threshold. So who are we to say that's not important because it is. Um, So I think just really understanding each individual within, you know, the nutritionists, the dietitians, the sports medicine uh, professionals, the coaches, um, equipment manager, everybody in the organization just needs to be comfortable with their role clarity. And you need to be comfortable with um, maybe not always aligning exactly with what each person defines as their role clarity and just working with them. I think that's something that um, I think sometimes ego can be the enemy in that, that circumstance. And rather than working with somebody, we try to just think that we can change their mind on things. So I think it needs to start with that relationship building. Um, that's me. You're saying me. Yeah. <laughs> Austin's a bit of an egomaniac, if you didn't know, Tim. I am not an egomaniac. I just always have a thought on things. That's good. <laughs> but, yeah. I think, uh, no, I, yeah. I love what you're, I love what you're saying about that stuff. Um, and I love that. So that's, very, very similar to how I know that like the, the PI, the UFC PI, they, they do their stuff really, really well in that scenario where it's everybody has a clear defined role mm-hmm. and stay in your lane. And if you don't agree with something, ask for, I guess, I guess the biggest thing is ask for clarity before you try to change shit. Yes. And that's, but I, I wanted to highlight too, like as much as we have our role clarity and we're staying in a lane, uh, Tim alluded to like the Venn diagram, right? Where strength coaches mm-hmm. a little bit overlapping with every other discipline, but like that also means that the other disciplines have a little bit overlapping with the strength coach as well. Sure. Right. So the other disciplines are tied in just as much. So yeah. that's I, my job. I, I think, yeah, I think that's why <laughs> where people lo- lose the boat where it's like, all right, strength and conditioning is at the center of this Venn diagram. It's like, no, athletic performance is at the center yeah, of the diagram. It's like, we are definitely not the center. Like I think, so. yeah, exactly. Yeah. We, we think like, like these athletes think like, they're not walking around campus and like thinking about their strength coach and thinking <laughs> lift and thinking about everything they're being told all day. Like we're a very, very, very small part of their experience. And I think sometimes we forget that, you know, it's about the athlete. That's why we're here. And it's yeah, not about the, um, the social media account. It's not about the um, getting your name out there all the time. It's, it's, it's literally a, about improving the performance, the education, the mindfulness, uh, the thoughtfulness, and the, the athlete's understanding of how they can actually perform better. And our yeah. job is to do that. And I think um, sometimes like, we, we don't realize that you know, us getting in an argument with the athletic trainer because we disagree with their uh, return to play protocol probably isn't going to benefit the athlete at all. What we could maybe do instead is, okay, um, why are you doing that? Get an understanding of where they're coming from. And maybe you agree with it. Maybe you don't. And maybe that's a chance for maybe you could give your um, input and education on the matter. And it's not to say that you can't take that athlete and bring them through something that maybe you think should be a part of their return to play protocol. 
Um, so I think it's just more about being adaptable and malleable, to different philosophies and understandings and, and not always just thinking that it's our way or the highway. Well, I, one of my, one of my mentors had a good, good quote on this type of subject uh, talking about like trying to make yourself the center of everything. And he's like, look, and you're in a support role. Your entire job is to be Yoda. You're not Luke Skywalker. Mm-hmm. Like, so, so why are you trying to be Luke Skywalker and get in the way and make it, make it your thing? And, and he, he was speaking to a group of people, a, a large group at a seminar. That makes a whole lot of sense, right? Like, it's not about me. It's never about me. It's about the athlete and heading him. Like when he fulfills his dreams, that fulfills my dreams. Yeah. And so like, I feel like a lot of the times people in all fields, I'm talking about healthcare specifically, but strength conditioning as well. We lose sight of the fact that it's about the athlete at the end of the day. And I love when people understand that. And the entire team understands that because if one person in that, in that team doesn't understand that the whole system gets fucked up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think sometimes too, we also get like really caught up in um, like the dogmas of, uh, Oh, you're not FRC certified. Are you kidding me? Or, like, you're not, you're not RPR level two. How are your athletes yeah. doing a game? It's like, it's, it's, you know, you don't run triphasic block or you don't run, um, you know, functional movement patterns or this or that. It's like, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. Like, first of all, every single one of those things is just stolen from an older principle, yeah. which is then again stolen from an even older principle and turned into a, a, a packaged, marketable thing that can be sold. And I think once yeah. we realize that, we realize it probably doesn't matter that much. Um, but I think sometimes, like when we get caught up in that, like we are an FRC staff or we are a functional pattern staff or a, a triphase. And it's like, are we doing that because we need to create an identity? Or are we doing that because it's genuinely better for the athlete? Like some athletes really, really might benefit a lot from um, implementing a, a triphasic system in their training. And, and it, it is a great system. It's just, it's not for everyone. It's not the end all be all. And it's just a culmination of things that are much older than the triphasic system itself. Yeah. And I think just generally that goes for any system is just, um, putting in the best strategy that the athlete's going to psychologically, mentally, emotionally buy into, and then um, making sure that, you know, the athlete is being man. And that also goes into the fact that we can't just always cater to the athlete. Like they can't dictate every single decision. That's our jobs. But we do have to make sure that, you know, we're meeting them halfway so that they get the best benefit from what we're implementing. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think it's, again, as soon as you label yourself the X guy or the, I only use this method, you're, you're inherently limiting your, ability to help the athlete, right? You're, you're narrowing your, your scope so specifically to this one methodology that, that may or may not help. Um, so I think it's wise to, to steal from a bunch of people and get multiple different angles and, and tools in your toolbox so that when you do go to help the athlete, you have a, you know, a whole arsenal of things and you just have to select the right modality why are you uh, advocating for stealing bro dude one of one a quote that, that stuck with me and i don't even remember where i heard it from but it's like if you steal from one person that's plagiarism right if you steal from one person that's you're the x guy and you're the frc guy you're the one one trick pony if you steal from a lot of people it's called research <laughs> you can apply that <laughs> for sure yeah, but, yeah, I think that also goes into the barrier of entry in our field. Like, oh, it's, yeah. because, you know, if you have somebody who, um, and, and I'm not trying to just like call out specific systems, I'm just using examples. Call them out, Tim. Call them all out. <laughs> but like, I mean, I, some of them, like I interned for, I interned for Mike Boyle and that was probably, that was my first internship and I came into it as um, just a meathead who had no idea what any 
anything was. I just loved to train. I didn't understand anything. I didn't know anything. Um, I just knew that when I was training with the St. Sebs football guys at Royals and they were doing rep bouts, I was just getting really fired up and just in their ear and just screaming. And I didn't know why we were doing anything that we were doing. And then as you go through the the process that anyone goes through in a professional career, you start to realize like, um, oh, we did that because of this. or we did that because of this. And yeah. Um, but I think like, you know, Boyle's a good example. So people who just follow the advances system, people who strictly intern and only know the triphasic system or, um, or animal flow or whatever, whatever thing. Yeah. Is that. <laughs> and I think what happens is it starts to really pigeonhole people into, you know, it's us versus them mentality where it's, uh, but Bill Hartman on the six, the, the, was it the 16 percenters, um, podcast he had, I remember he talked about one time <clears throat> every single young professional or person who's coming into a new uh, profession or whatever it is needs to have a really good infrastructure. And it kind of goes back into um, similar like what Jocko talks about with having a really rigid structure um, that you can work within before you start having opinions and ideas of your own. Yeah. So there is a lot of benefit to having these systems because I think it introduces young professionals who might not have as big of a knowledge base or breadth of understanding. It allows them an area and a space where they can kind of um, really understand something. So they understand how to structure a program, what a weekly structure should look like. They understand how to make an annual plan, like the basic things, X's and O's, um, so that then when they start to bring in more things in their breadth of knowledge and their understanding, they can say, oh, this fits here, this fits here. And all of a sudden you have your own system. You have um, Alex's system, you have Austin's system. And it's based on your experiences. It's based on anecdote, research, uh, what you read, people you're surrounded by, um, rather than just being pigeonholed into a text. Right. But but I think what happens with, with some people where, where some people get stuck is they look at the, the wrong details of that infrastructure, right? So I'm brought up in this, whatever, let's say I'm brought up in this tri- triphasic system. Then I'm looking at everything through a, you know, isometric, eccentric or concentric lens. And I'm looking at how do I um, structure these phases and what percentage I should be at. It's not looking at how the system is built and looking at what influences um, how everything works together and, and is cohesive and taking that to my own system. What I take to my own system is that I'm a triphasic guy and I need to have this X percentage at on this type of movement. Right. So I think yep. it's important to, to have the right scope when you're looking at that, when you're coming up in that system, it's not that you're looking at the specifics of the system and, and looking at the, the minutia is that you're looking, how is the system built and, and what aspects of that can I take into the new different system that I'm learning or the new type of infrastructure that I try to build for Alex's system. Yeah. Well, and like, I, like, so Tim, I don't, we haven't talked a whole bunch, but like, so a lot of my background, I'm not a DNS guy, but I have a lot of DNS experience. And one of my main mentors, Brett Winchester, who's one of their lead uh, lecturers. And so something he always says, he's like, DNS isn't a system. DNS is a lens and you can look through it or you don't have to look through it, but it's in your toolbox. But as soon as you turn it into a system, as soon as that's the only thing you do, you're hurting your patients. You're not helping your patients. And that's that like for like one of the leading authorities on this one little thing to say that shit. I'm like, oh, damn, like everybody wants the what everybody wants to do the modified oblique sits and to centrate functionally centrate the joints, all that stuff. They don't fucking realize that it's just why are you doing this? 
Are you doing this for hip stability? Well, there's a bunch of different ways to fucking get hip stability. This is just one of those ways. So I feel like so many people get stuck with the, with the what, and they don't really care about the why. When in reality, we got to flip that on its head. You should care about the why and the what really doesn't matter because there's a bunch of different ways to get to the same goal. Yeah. And then also I think with that, people don't care about the why or they go too far into the why to the point where it's like at a certain point, there's a threshold where you don't really need to know that much more. You need to know the how and how you're going to get an athlete to do it properly to gain the adaptation that all this stuff says it's going to do. And I think, and I agree, I completely agree with you. I think sometimes like you, you people, what is it? What do I do? Okay. They don't care about why. And maybe they do care about why and they go way too far in this direction. It's all why. And then they completely omit how, how do you get the athlete to actually drive intent under the bar? How do you get an athlete to actually, um, you know, centrate a joint? How do you get an athlete to actually articulate a joint and control that? And a lot of that comes down to now the art of coaching and how you communicate and how you actually, essentially what you're doing is you're taking your why and understanding the why of something. And you have to find a way to create a line of communication to another human to not only comprehend what you're trying to do, but actually physically perform it. And I think that's a huge thing that's, that's omitted in our, uh, in our education process for the barrier to entry into this field is it's not what you're doing. It's how you're doing it. Um, and it's like, you know, you, you're not going to go through a pretty accumulation intensification realization phase. and All of a sudden, um, you know, you're dodging down the alley to, to score a goal faster, right? Yeah. <laughs> the, those phases are about a half of a percentage of the whole pie where you have to be, out there working on your pressure passing, your shooting, your um, accelerations, holding a stick and actually shooting on the run. Like there's all these things that go into this process. And like you said, DNS, or if you're using FRC or if you're following into, it all works. It, everything works. I'm not like triphasic, work, it, it, but it's, it's how you do it and how you implement it as a coach. And then how the athlete subsequently does it and approaches it to actually elicit the adaptation that you're saying is going to happen. Yeah. And that right there is the part that I think is the gray area that people don't always discuss. Like when you read all these really fancy, pretty Instagram posts and it's yeah. like this, this, and this causes this, this, and this. And I'm guilty of this 100% everybody is. <laughs> but how is it actually happening and how are you communicating it to the athlete to make sure that those things are actually, because you can say all this, but if the athlete's not driving any sort of intrinsic or extrinsic thought or intent or motivation behind it it's not occurring yeah and, and i think that's what the, exactly what you said i think that's a huge disconnect like when people are trying to reference instagram or they take a lot of inspiration like there's some good stuff on instagram there's some stupid stuff but there's some good stuff that you can actually take but we read the captions and we read the captions like okay this is what they told the athlete it's like not at all man like that that's what they're explaining to other coaches and right like there's a space for that too like what you need to explain to other coaches like why you're listening or why you're doing whatever else but that is not what you say to the athlete like that was one of, one of the best things when i was an undergrad uh, i was in like our periodization class or whatever and he's like i'm gonna tell you all of this like and, and we're gonna go through these movements i'm giving you all the details this is not what you need to tell a coach or this is not what you need to tell an athlete excuse me and it's it's that that gray area that's kind of difficult and confusing and and is a little bit intimidating or awkward that nobody wants to get into as a strength coach, because all, we're all good at our job already. We all need to have that ego on our shoulder. Mm-hmm. So then nobody, nobody opens up to be vulnerable enough to be like, I'm not very good at communication, which I think people should open up and explore that. And like you're saying, make that an integral part of our training as strength and conditioning coaches, because that is what's huge. It's not 
like I call it nerding out. Like as a strength and conditioning spread, I can nerd out as much as I want exercise physiology. I can nerd out as much as I want. Why, you know, why I just read an anatomy trains book or whatever. That's not communicating that specific knowledge to my athlete is not going to make that big of a difference. But if I can get them to perform some of the anatomy trains methods or, or whatever through a, a different sense of communication, then we might get some of the benefits out of it. Right. So I think that that's huge. And uh, I want to go back to one quote that uh, for people that might not know, Tim was one of my main mentors when I interned at DU. But one thing that he said to me that stuck with me, and, and you said it again earlier, it's like people like to look at strength and conditioning, like we're this different type of profession, we're this different breed or whatever, like, and maybe that's the ego talking. But, you know, when it comes down to it, we're a profession just like everyone else, right? We need to communicate. We need to build relationships. We need to sell our concepts at some points, but like also on like the working hard aspect. And this is what Tim told me is like, doctors work hard too. Lawyers, anybody that owns their own business, everybody's grinding. Everybody's putting the hours in. It's not just strength and conditioning coaches that are in the gym at X hour or whatever. Like everybody works hard. So I think we, we need to get over that a little bit of strength and conditioning coaching and start embracing like, the actual meaning of what it is to be a professional. What do we want just, our profession to be? Yeah. Like what, what, what do we want it to be? Because right now it's like, when people ask what I do, like I get people who, and you guys definitely probably get this as well. It's, Oh, you're like an occupational therapist. If you're talking to like your grandma or mm-hmm. like if you're talking to, um, you know, some dude at the bar and he's just, Oh, so you're like a, you're like a personal trainer. Right. <laughs> right. right. Or it's like, you talk to somebody, it's, but what, what do we want to be? And I think one of the things that like you just touched on is, first of all, we are not the hardest working profession out there. We, we like to think like, go talk to, uh, you know, a, a small family owned farm that's been in the family for three generations, right? Pretty sure yeah. that they can attest to probably longer, harder days than what we experience. Go talk to somebody who works construction and then takes on every single overtime shift to feed their family um or go talk to the uh the doctor who did residency and didn't make their first paycheck until 12 years after starting their career path and then they're still making a very small amount of money regardless of what the american populace thinks doctors make and they're right. for the rest of working 100 hour weeks and seven days a week but but somehow we think that we are the only professional and i'm guilty that everybody's guilty of this is yeah, yeah. And then of course, a lot of it comes down because you do an internship that you're working for free and you're working 70, 80 hour weeks and it's, it's, it's hard work, but it's not, you know, we're not saving lives. We're not out in the sun doing manual labor all day. It's still just a, we're a climate controlled facility, coaching athletes. It's a pretty cool job. Yeah. But I think what we need to do is, is actually define what we want our profession to be. Uh, stop arguing about stuff that really doesn't matter and doesn't have that big of an impact. Um, like, squat depth, like Olympic lifting versus jumping with weights or um, things that obviously you can have an opinion on and a hundred percent. But guess what? Doctors have differing opinions too. Lawyers have differing opinions as well. Do you think that they're arguing with each other on social media about those things? No, as a whole, they probably want to uh, improve the quality of life for their profession or um, have a really clear defined uh, role within the organization that they work. And I think that's what we need to, as a profession, start doing. Um, and, you know, I, there was that article from Pure uh, where he compared it to the textile industry. And I think I, I agreed with the notion. I don't agree with the exact comparison of being yeah. textile mill. But, um, and I, I don't think we need to unionize by any means. I don't think we need to create a, um, a very strict uh, organization and faction of a union. But I do think that we need to start uh, d- discussing things like 
uh, how fiscal budget is allotted into uh, the performance of strength conditioning departments or how uh, the, the government uh, addresses health, wellness, and fitness uh, and whether that goes under the, the uh, insurance umbrella that physical therapy does. Because it's yeah. just like everything, we can't just be reactive approach to everything. We need to have some proactivity. Um, and I think if anything, the past year has told us that we need to have a much bigger understanding of health, wellness, immunity, um, longevity, all these things. Uh, and I think that those are the things that we focus on uh, as a group and a whole. And we need to get away from, um, oh, yeah, I don't agree with anything that guy does. Yeah, oh, right. really, you don't agree with anything that guy does. Really. <laughs> Not one thing. <laughs> Not one thing. It really matters that much. Like, <laughs> I will, say, you- tr- I will say, trust trust me, bro, you do not want to be in the insurance game. Insurance. Oh, yeah. yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, you. that is, I will say, because I, I mean, I've, I wear two hats at once, right? Strength coach, healthcare, all the fun stuff. But there's a reason why my practice is all cash because every single person I'm with, all my buddies that are in the insurance game, it it actually decreases the quality of care that you'll end up giving. Yeah, yeah. It's a double-edged sword, though, because on the other thing, on the other end of things, if you're not a part of a structured organization that's either government funded or whatever have you, um, then you're always dealing with, am I going to be able to pay my rent the next month? Right. Like there's, there's everything always going to have the pros and cons. And I, I, I know what you're a hundred percent what you're saying. For sure. Yeah. But so where, what do you, how do you feel about the different um, certifications? Cause obviously that's a, a governing body, right? Do you, do you think that strength conditioning needs to have almost like a license? Like yes. my, like, like healthcare you do. Yeah. Well, I think what it does, I, I think everything should have a, a license because that's like the first barrier to entry is, yeah. Oh, do you have your CSCS? It's, it's not to say if you don't have your CSCS, you don't know what you're talking about. Cause there's plenty of that. It's like, um, you know, I'm pretty sure when, uh, Dr. Yesis or Vershansky, they were, they were, uh, when he was discussing the shock method and how there's, uh, you know, all the things that are going into what creates a collision and apply metric. I'm sure he, he wasn't concerned about having a CSCS. Um, but well, they I, didn't. So should we listen to him? <laughs> well, then it doesn't matter. None of it's true because he, he wasn't accredited. So, um, but no, it's like, I think you need to have that just to make sure that there is some sort of, uh, there needs to be a level playing field and a, a barrier to entry that creates a homogenous kind of, this is the step one. I think what we need to not do, which I don't think we really do anyway, is overemphasize it. Um, I think the one thing uh, that kind of frustrates me about the accreditations is like the cost of upholding them. Uh, I I think that like the cost of upholding them and the um, time for renewal is pretty frequent and pretty costly um, for something that like, you know, when I was doing my Gatorade seminars to make sure I had enough um, CS or CS, SCCC credits, um, you know, I'm learning about electrolytes in summer preseason, like like things that like hydration, like things that like I don't really need to keep learning about yeah. um, that you learn in like eighth grade health class. Um, <laughs> but I think what it does is those like if you go to the conference, like it's a great place for you know I'm speaking obviously from the collegiate sector so i'm not just using that as a platform but like when you go there it's just it's more because it's fun you get to see all the different you get to meet new people you get to network um, i think it's good because it creates um, kind of a faction of you know these these people are all in the same boat all in the same profession working towards the same goal um, and i think it creates almost uh, a more unified front with our field like 
Yeah, that's the Strength Coaches Conference. It's a place where we all go every once a year. Everyone meets up, networks, and we listen to some people talk. We go get free samples of Honey Singer. Like, it's just, it's more of just like, um, I don't know, not a novelty, but a, a thing that I think helps benefit the field. Yeah. I don't think it builds, it's, it builds relationships. Yeah, and, and camaraderie within and unionization of the field. But I think it, it, what it's not is it's not something that's like, oh, if you don't have that, you have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. But I think you do need to have that as a base level. I think the direction that like the CSCCA, for example, is trying to go is really good because what they're trying to do is just um, they're, they're almost creating a path, a pathway within a career path that's has exponential upward mobility. You, um, you have to get your mentorship hours uh, in an accredited institution before you take your SCCC. The SCC itself has a written and a practical, so you actually have to show that you can coach, but also know the basics of human physiology. Then you go and you have to make sure that you're maintaining your your uh, professional development, which I don't think is an issue for anyone in our field. Um, um, yeah. You, you, yeah, you stay in the field for long enough, then you get your master's uh, certification, your MSCCC. And is it the end-all be-all? And, and does it determine whether or not you're a good professional? No, there's plenty of master's strength coaches who probably do a terrible job. And there's plenty that are absolute mentors and idols of mine. Um, so I think like anything, just like there's good cops, there's bad cops, there's good doctors, there's bad doctors. Um, the accreditation doesn't determine whether you're a good person or professional, but it's a, a good structure to have as a profession. Yeah, I totally agree that I think the the minimum qualification needs to be raised into something like the uh, model that you're talking about. But uh, the other thing that I kind of want to get on a soapbox about is uh, is the continued education field that that building fighter is going to get into in the future. But I think I just see it as feeding itself, right? Because you get this, the CSCS or whatever certification for a strength coach that you need. And then they demand all these continued education hours or professional development so that you pay more money to, to learn things that may or may not be relevant, but you need to maintain your, your accreditation. And, and we were just talking about every acronym out there that has their own system and wants to make you this type of guy just to make money. And they're ridiculously expensive. And do you really need them to be a good strength coach? And, and that's, that's the biggest thing that I get back to is like, at what point is the certification, you know, everybody and their mother now has their own certification. At what point does that actually make you a better coach versus is it now just a marketplace for people to try and, and sell something or make money? Right. So I think that's where like building fighter can come in and, and do it different. And then because we can offer, this is not like the building a fighter system. You don't need to be just a building a fighter coach, but this is how we can integrate everything. And this is how we can see differently as a professional, not just use this specific methodology. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think that's what, uh, that, that's a really good outlook to have on it. And yeah. I think that's like a, a good progression and kind of goal. I think SCN also has kind of like a similar um, outlook into that, where it's just having people within the profession that are part of SCN yeah. creating the educational platforms. And it goes across every single topic, scope, methodology, principle you can imagine. Yeah. But I think that's, that's a good point. I think the only other thing is um, like, if you look at um, medical professionals or doctors, for example, you can have doctors who have all the accreditations in the world who are terrible. Right. Mm -hmm. And they all have to every whatever amount of year, X amount of years have to go through and do the same standardized test to make sure that they're still up to par with um, the base level that needs to be performed in the job. Yeah. I think my issue is very similar to what you're saying, where it's like, I have a problem with every two or three years, I have to scramble to make sure I have all my CEUs in 
and I'm just doing like a bunch of random like free tests and stuff to make sure I get my CEUs up to par when I'm a active working professional who's doing professional development, continuing education and actually in the trenches coaching every day. Um, and I think that should count for something as well. Yeah. I think that the, those organizations need to find a way to create a relative scale. So um, if you're a tenured working professional who's been an active full-time strength coach for five years, maybe you don't have to renew as frequently, or maybe you don't have to do as many CEUs if you're an active full-time professional as somebody who's interning or just search on the job search or um, green and like things like that. There needs to yeah. be a relative scale on that, I think. Yeah, for sure. And something that frustrates the hell out of me <clears throat> from the healthcare side is like, dude, some of the best stuff that I've learned doesn't even get me CEUs. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, it doesn't even count towards my CEUs, even though that's the stuff that I use on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. It's like, like some of the, like, um, what was it? Uh, I think it was one of the DNS courses. I was, do you know, Rich Olm? Do you know that name? Who's that? Rich Olm. Uh, he's a, he's a DNS weightlifting. It's a course that he teaches, but he works with a lot of the West side guys, um, in Ohio state, but I took his course and that didn't even come for any CEUs for any, for any of my Cairo, like, uh, recertifications or anything. I'm like, I just mm-hmm. paid a th- I paid a thousand dollars and I didn't even get any credit for any of this. Not that I need the credit knowledge was fucking awesome. Mm-hmm. But like the way that CEUs actually get tallied towards whether it be S and C healthcare or whatever for your research, it isn't always indicative of what you're learning. And that's to me is the most frustrating part is that mm-hmm. some of the best stuff it, they don't even say that it counts towards you getting better. But that goes back into the role clarity argument. Yeah. They, they don't deem that a part of your role, like that stuff, like they might, might not value it as, um, which is obviously false. Obviously we know that, but the, or the, all the umbrella organization in which you work, um, says, Hey, this doesn't really count towards your merit points as a professional and how we deem your role. And that goes back to the whole entire thing of what is it that we do? And if that has a better definition, um, I think that could do two things. Could either actually narrow things down to a point where it's like something that I would hate because you have to only implement certain strategies that are deemed appropriate by an organization. Um, and if you don't, then you're legally liable for that. Or um, where we currently are, where you can kind of just do anything. Yeah. <laughs> you, you can kind of, honestly, you can just make up anything you want and say it's real right. and just do it because I see a lot of that too. And it's like, like then there's just no sort of, structure so i think it's kind of this like this pendulum and we need to find a happy medium um where you know you can have uh, autonomy creativity and defining what your role is but also having a little bit more structure and actually understanding what should be prioritized and i think that goes into as well like again i deal with coach education administrators um where although like like administrators at du are honestly probably the best in the country like they're awesome i love the administration there um, and every coach I work with is awesome and they all are so open to like listening to what I have to say. Um, oh, yeah. and, and honestly, especially with like, like, I don't want to, people probably won't listen to this, but coach T, uh, <laughs> coach T is probably the biggest mentor I've ever had. Like I grew up watching him on TV on, at Memorial days and like, yeah. honestly, and then the fact that I get to like work with him or for him or whatever have you, um, is pretty surreal. Um, so like the coaches and admin I work with, they're awesome, but the problem is they don't always know what it is that we do. And if you go back to X's nose of how, um, valuations are set in terms of, uh, budget allotment or salary or, 
web-based raises or what, whatever it is, you need to have role clarity in an organization and not just an organization and a department, but an entire profession field before you start talking about increasing pay, before you start talking about increasing um, work-life balance. Like most college athletic departments do not follow civil labor law. <laughs> nope. Like, and it, it, honestly, that goes back to the other thing. Any, any career is not going to probably follow that in terms of hours worked, um, time put in uh, to the job and not being paid overtime, whatever it is. But if you want to improve and have more people retiring the profession and having upward mobility into administrative roles or um, whatever scope and profession you're talking about, you need to have united front. And I think going back to like what you said about like you're learning all this stuff that's super useful. And I don't doubt that at all. Um, like the DNS stuff, but it doesn't go into your umbrella organization. So technically yeah. it doesn't really matter. Yeah. yeah. So we need to find that, that middle. Right. And well, and that's the same thing with like bringing it back to why I don't think the right play. And I'm not saying you were saying this, but I don't think the right play is ever insurance because that's literally what happened. That's the, that's the main thing why I don't do insurance is because I don't want somebody with zero degrees and doesn't know anatomy to tell me how to treat my patient. Cause that's what it is. Yeah. It's you either get approved to do this or not. Like I do a bunch of dry needling. Dry needling is not covered by insurance. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, but but I get the best results when I am dry needling. Like for certain areas, like if I'm hitting a TFL, that dry needling is what works. That, that That's what we know, but it's yeah. not going to get covered. What what the fuck is this? Yeah. <laughs> and not to get too like existential or, or whatever here, but like. No, get as existential as possible, yeah, Tim. That's the shit I like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And if, this might not even be existential. We're just having people, honestly, but um if you think about it, like we, you, you also have to understand that like this stuff all matters in terms of the society in which you live. So we, we are choosing because we do have free will. We don't have to live in the United States of America. Um, yeah. And we, ha- we are choosing to live here. And by choosing to live here, we're umbrellaed under what we deem to be medical practice. And so we have um, Western medicine has a set of principles, rules, beliefs, methods, things that are used that are covered by our insurance to be deemed a medical practice. And if we want to be part of that and not medical, but part of the health wellness, whatever have you, then you have to be okay with, okay. Uh, dry needling or acupuncture things, things that might fall more into uh, lack of a better term, Eastern medicine. Right. So, so that's the other thing, the other double-edged sword is like our profession in strength conditioning or sports performance is so ambiguous that we don't have, we literally don't have any sort of um, thing that can go into a, a neat Venn diagram besides saying that we want to improve the general athletic qualities of strength, power, uh, speed, repeatability, fitness. Uh, we have these general things but the methods are literally exponential. So they, they go from Soviet block to like, to, you know, this, to that, to this, to that. And it's so wide of a scope that we can't narrow it down to something that like you're saying is deemed under a uh, Western civilization, medical practice. Yeah. It's interesting. Well, and some of my thoughts around that too go to the conversation we had with Christina Chu, who is our a dietitian that we work with. Um, and she's like, you know, anybody can call themselves a nutritionist, right? Anybody can call themselves a strength coach, like period. You know, like anybody can say, I'm a coach, I coach this, I coach that. But but the, the thing that the nutrition industry has is a registered dietitian, right? They have a, a ultimate licensing board for being a registered dietitian. Like, and if we say that like a CSCS is similar to that, we're kidding ourselves. Right. So it's like, where, what is that next step for a strength and conditioning coach that we can legitimize and, and actually make a 
legit barrier of entry to the field. Right. So that's kind of a different profession to, to look at as well. Yeah, for sure. So what, what steps do you go about to do that though? Is it, do you go, you have to go to the, do you have to go into the government and try to pass bills and all these different things? Or do you try to do it in the private sector? Cause that, that's where I'm like, my papa always told me, don't, don't bring up problems unless you can fix them. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that's what I'm thinking. I'm like, so I love, I love this entire conversation, but how do we change it? How do we progress forward? How do, how do we actually make this a registered or licensed or whatever it may be profession? Well, I think we're doing it. I think that's yeah. the thing is um, we're just really impatient people that want it now. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. But if you even look at the past uh, 20 years, and I'm obviously just referring to strength conditioning, um, yep. Yep. but if you even look at like look at how much um, how many more full time positions have been entered into collegiate and professional settings, or look at how many just how many more really well established private facilities there are in our country, and I think the thing is like this is it's going to happen. Um, we just need to be like stay the course, and I think sometimes people just get and I'm I'm included in this. They get super frustrated because. Um, you know, you have the, the administrator who still thinks that you're just a personal trainer who works with the athletes. So you have, um, the parent who comes up and is asking you how to get rid of the fat on their tricep. Um, so they look and look like a sundress, um, and, and you still have to deal with that stuff. But like, um, it's the same thing with that doctors probably deal with, with them being asked stupid questions and having misnomed, uh, different vernaculars or understandings of what it is that they do. But I think we're doing it. If you look at like how much. Um, physical therapy, occupational therapy, athletic training, sports medicine, um, sports science, um, for better or worse, uh, and strength conditioning professionals and performance professionals. I think we're getting to a point now where we now understand that it's not just improving somebody's one rep max, their vertical jump, and how fast they sprint and all that. We understand that it's, okay, how does this athlete consistently sleep what are this what are the athletes daily routines in terms of uh getting to a circadian rhythm and a sleep cycle and uh, diet and nutrition and hydration and um at the end of the day how is this actually transferring to sport and that's one thing that i i've really tried to push this past couple of years is um like talking to the lacrosse staff like really watching and understanding the sport and what the movements are and again, this goes into people misunderstanding that into, okay, now we have to match those in the weight room. Well, no, we don't actually. Um, <laughs> you just need to have a really good understanding so that you can create a line of thought and communication where it's, you know, we're still going to squat to depth. We're still going to squat on one leg and two legs. We're still going to hinge. We're still going to pull. We're still going to do basic accelerations, even though apparently those don't matter anymore. Uh, we're still going to do all this stuff. But now I have context of how I can communicate this stuff to the athlete and actually better their movement on the field or uh, the rink of the court, whatever it is. And I think our profession is moving into that expert generalist role where it's, okay, you're having an issue with your lean body mass and it comes down to nutrition. Let's bring the nutritionist in here, set up a meeting, you guys talk, right? And I can continue to reinforce basic nutritional things. I'm not a nutritionist or a registered dietitian, but I can continue to reinforce what our nutritionist is saying. Um, or, you know, your first step in your dodge, if you're an offensive midi, uh, is really slow. Okay, let's create a, a line of understanding between why we're doing basic acceleration work. And then let's look at how you actually move on the field and watch some film and see, are, are there any kind of overlaps or things that we can actually create ties to 
to improve your operational and maximal outputs of your acceleration to make you a better dodger. But I think the problem is we try to, um, well, people skate like this, so we need to do this in the weight room. Or people run like this and do this on the field, so we need to do this in the weight room. It's like, no, you still train generally, and then you create lines of thought, communication, and, and mindfulness to specific demands. And I think that you're seeing our profession start to understand that. And that's why we're becoming kind of sports performance coaches, where it's a more holistic development of the athlete. Um, and that's where the transfer occurs. The transfer doesn't occur from some crazy new exercise that's been invented. The transfer occurs from consistent general training, consistent specific training and playing your sport, and then having somebody who's in a role to create a line of understanding between those two things. Um, and I think that now that our profession is still so young and it's starting to understand that once we start to really grasp that and that's how we get hired and we get hired into roles that do that rather than getting hired on oh i knew this guy and mentored under these three people and i was an ex-athlete and i'm really strong so hire me as a strength coach it's going to be i understand the sport and the demands and all these things within your sport i understand the basic physiology uh, mechanisms of adaptation how to actually apply stress and stimulus and I can actually create a tie in line between that. And once we really narrow and, and de- narrow down that concept and kind of nail it into this is what we do and this is who I'm hiring, I think that's where we're going to start seeing that progression into what we were talking about, where we have a little bit more rapport and respect in this field. Um, administrators and coaches have a little bit more understanding of what we actually do. Um, and we get hired on for those reasons. We don't get hired on because of who we know necessarily or what we've done or where we intern, but because of qualifications, that's where you're going to start seeing the profession really grow. And I think it's happening. We just need to be more patient, myself included. Yeah, I think that was beautifully put. (laughs) And we've said said similar things in the MMA context, but I think you you just elaborated and, and put it in very good, complete terms. Yeah, yeah. I can't, I can't follow that up. So I think that's where we end it. <laughs> yeah, no, we just, but we seem to be better people, man. <laughs> <laughs> that's like my, that's like my go-to coach. Just be better. Just be better yeah. at your job. Do that's the last job. thing I probably want to touch on that. I'm sure you guys will have thoughts on too, is just like, one thing I think running an internship program that I've learned and I was definitely guilty of because of internships I was a part of that it was how I was treated. Um, and again, this is all, every single thing is intertwined and it comes down to like, we continue to bastardize our profession because we continue to bastardize the people who are entering it. And I think, um, you know, I was obviously, I've had really every internship I've done was a ridiculously awesome experience and I don't have anything bad to say, but the whole, again, we talk about dogmas and how, how interns are treated and, you know, there should be a little bit of that. Like there should be a little bit of, you know, fuck you, you haven't done anything. You haven't put skin in the game. You can't have an opinion yet. Just like every 18 to 22 year old in higher education has an opinion shouldn't have one. Um, but <laughs> You know, we, we need to understand, like, I have gone through the process of, if I'm running an internship program, honestly, kind of being a dick. And I'm guilty of that. Yeah. Because that's, there's been times where I was treated like that. But once you start realizing that, like, these people are coming in and not making money um, or making very, very little wages, small wages, and they're coming to your institution to literally learn from you. And they could be moving from California or Wisconsin or Massachusetts and they're flying across the country to pay rent and work for free, you should probably make sure that you're actually trying to develop them and not just like, you know, keep them under you and make sure they know their role. And I think that that's another thing is there, there just needs to be more organized educational structures within a, a institutional internship. No, a hundred percent. And 
something that I I've had, I've actually been thinking about this a lot recently because I've had some people coming through uh, shadowing and stuff like that. But I feel like when we go after, I guess, like the, the hard ass role of trying, trying to like, not, for lack of better words, beat them into submission, like that type of thing, it almost like discounts the outliers that like, there's the Eric Cressy's that can go and speak at a, at a, at a conference in front of everybody when he's 27. That is his first time speaking in front of people. And if it's just how we treat our athletes, it's the same way you should, in my mind, treat the shadowers, treat the interns, treat the preceptors where N equals one. Sometimes there's like, we get people coming to the clinic where I'm like, you're, you're going to be a C doctor for the rest of your life. Like you're, you're always going to be, you're just above average. And it's just because you don't have that drive. And so you treat them a certain way, but then you get those A plus, you get those A plus physical therapists, those A plus strength coaches, those people that have that desire to learn and they have that inherent understanding of what's going on. And then you, at least how, how I handle that is I throw the fucking book at them. I'm like, you want to learn? I, I can learn from you because you just seem like you get it. I can learn from anybody. But I also want to throw fucking everything at you because I want to see if you can handle it or not. And if you can handle all the information and you can grow with that information, uh, it, you might go from, hey, you're at an A coming into this internship to, hey, you're one of the top 10 people in the entire fucking world at what you do after this, after this six month stint. And maybe he doesn't, they don't have the experience yet, but they have the general understanding. They have the knowledge. And as long as they don't think that they're too hot shit and they don't think that they know everything, they're going to go up, 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 up to where that's where you get the Mike Boyles. That's where you get the Eric Cressys. That's where you get where, where I would like to be one day. And, and at the top of the profession where people say, hey, this is the dude. If you want to learn sports med about combat sports, this is that motherfucker. And that's, that's how I want to treat those guys. And, and personally is when they come through. Yeah, no. And I agree with what you're saying, Austin. I think you're coming from a very good lens and good context when you're talking about treating your, your interns and your shadowers, how you would treat your athletes, right? Because you treat your athletes. Well, I don't think that's I, the case yeah. all the time. I think that's also what got, you know, our, our industry in trouble. It's like treat the interns and the, the shadowers like the athletes when in some cases the athletes, do this, do that. Don't question me. I'm the man. Right. And then we say that same stuff to our intern or like you have a, a physical challenge for your interns to pass to, you know, earn their stripes or whatever. It's like we have our athletes go through this physical challenge. Like, again, that's the same thing that could, could possibly get it the industry in trouble where it's like, you know, the interns and, and shadowing people aren't, you know, someone to bully around and to, to just get, or just listen to ex exactly what you're saying, but like there are people that, that can develop and we should treat them like we expect the best from them. And like, we actually want to teach them and be there well, with them. You said it right there. They're people. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Like that's the thing. And that's the other thing too. Alex can attest this, but like the way I try to educate the interns or, or whoever is I, I really hate absolutes unless we know something to be true. Um, and even more so, actually, I, after I just finished reading uh, the, the sexist, uh, it wasn't his actual philosophical text, but it was a like a, a condensed version where he talks about just seeing both sides of a coin. Um, and I think the thing is, I hate absolutes unless we know it's an absolute. So something has to be affirmed as something that's a fact. Um, so, you know, one of the examples is if you eat uh, an orange and the orange is sweet, is the orange sweet or did you eat it and it made you sweet, right? And I think the thing is like when, when people in the educational process of an internship or fellow mentorship, whatever it is, you can't, A, you have to treat them like a person because they are, you have to treat them like a human. And that's not always the case. Yeah. Um, and B, you have to make sure that what you're giving them is education that can be um, a 
apply to any context, role, or environment. So it has to be umbrella, principle-based theory and application that they can now take. And when they read Triphasic or they read Joel Jameson or they listen to Eric Cressy speak, they can actually critically think on the subject matter and create their own lines of thought and understanding. And I think we, we try to actually go to the front end of that learning process and drive it this way and say, this is what's true and this is what's a fact rather than trying to go this way and push them into what they're going to become. Yeah. And I think that long, short term, sometimes you might not get your power dynamics where the interns worship and bow down to you um, as like the, the more knowledgeable other and the omniscient demigod that's teaching them. But <laughs> long term, what I think you're doing is you're creating a more genuine um, and deep relationship with that intern because 10 years down the road, they're going to be like, oh, I'm able to actually critically think about this because that experience I had learning from this individual who actually uh, forced me to critically think about something. And maybe he didn't instill, you, you don't get the power, the, the, what are the 48 laws of power uh, in, your, yeah. in your ivory tower with everybody worshiping you in the um, organization administration, but you know, you're, you're actually creating people who can think for themselves and are going to become their own version of what they want to be in the profession. Yeah, dude. Amen. And, and that's where I got myself into some trouble early on in my internships. Where I, was, I was getting taught that from the top down, like, this is a fact, this is what we know through our system. And then I would like question that, right? And that doesn't bode well for the guy that wants to be, you know, you know, everything or, or you're worshiped, like you said. So yeah, I think yeah. that's, again, spot on. Just got to treat people like humans. Just Yeah. yeah. Just well, and to, to your point too, Tim, oh, I see a lot of the time people just parrot shit. Like they go through an internship and then if it's like that top-down model, they literally just parrot back mm-hmm. forever what that person told them. And they don't ever actually have to think about the topic ever yeah. because that person said it and that was right. And yeah. you, you can't do that. Like that, that's how you make yeah. people that don't have understanding and aren't ever going to grow. You, yeah. Use, use the, the structure as almost a, uh, I'm blanking on the word of the uh, things they put on the sides of buildings that, uh, billboards. Mural. Scaffolding. Tyvek. Scaffolding. <laughs> Put up the scaffolding and allow them to build the building. That's my right. Austin's an idiot. Yeah. yeah. Not... <laughs> I'm like murals, side mural. of buildings. Okay. <laughs> A mural would work, actually. <laughs> but hell yeah well tim you got anything else my dude dude i didn't um, think we cover a lot yeah that was great yeah, that was that was dense and i liked it that's yeah. a good way to start off my sunday yeah that was good hell that's yeah. all I got. well dude if, if people have questions or oh, how are they going to contact you um well they can go to the i've been kind of off the uh, robust page the robust physical prep i run that with um massimo we call him massive giraffe at boss university um so they can kind of go there to DM or they can uh, just email me, which is uh, T-M-U-R-9455 at gmail.com. Uh, but yeah, so sweet. Has, has any questions? Heck yeah. Please randomly uh, reach out to Tim. I, <laughs> I want that to happen. I'll just preface that I'm really bad. With, I'm really bad. Anything outside of a face-to-face verbal communication. So texting, emailing. We were, talking, we were trying to schedule this and we were talking the other day and I was talking to Tim. I was like, you know, Tim, I think I would have better luck contacting you if I just showed up at your door and yep. knocked on the door like little <laughs> kids would. Like, is Tim home to play? Can we talk? Yeah, that's part of the, I should have been. I should have been this age in 1930, but. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I would have preferred you to come to my door, but. Sorry. <laughs> oh, yeah, uh, contact me there. Sweet. I'm just going to send you a random hey email then. <laughs> 
Uh, so for the listeners, please like, share, subscribe, do all the cool stuff that allows us to become friends with your friends. Uh, also, please give us a rating if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. That'll help us out tremendously with the SEO and allow us to talk to more people. If you got any questions for me or Alex, you can shoot us uh, emails or Instagram or DMs, whatever it may be. In the sh- all of our contact information is in the show notes, as will Tim's will be as well. Um, and this is Building a Fighter, Dr. Austin Shane. Alex Friedman. And Tim Murray. <laughs> I don't know if I'm <laughs> yes, and we are out. Yeah.